The opinions expressed within this episode are solely my own and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. This podcast was recorded on Gubby Gubby Country. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional ancestors and custodians of this land and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to Radio Vet Nurse Interrupted. I'm Kat Walker. Over the past three episodes, I've taken a deep dive into the vet industry to look at the factors that are contributing to the current crisis. It's been uncomfortable at times and all of the guests I've interviewed have been vulnerable and very honest. But what now? We know the cause, we know the challenges ahead, and we know what some of the most influential people in the industry are trying to do to create lasting change. In this final episode of this series, I'd like to take a look at what we might be able to do to help ourselves personally stay afloat. What changes can we make to how we operate to help our day-to-day working lives and those of our peers? I think the actions that we take are very, very similar for the business as the individuals. Individuals lead the way and no matter how much we want to hide behind you know i hear people saying i've referred it to management or you know this is the business problem i hate to break it to everyone that's ever said that but the business is just a collection of people and the actions that we take have to be taken as individuals and as individuals we will change the business environment i think that's the best way of saying that the action is the same that's co-founder and director of the animal emergency service dr rob webster Rob really believes in the power of the individual to influence big picture change. Within our control is being the example, right? Within the control is taking some time to think about what is the most important thing to me. You know, and and if I'm sitting down and, and thinking about this myself, I think about it as a veterinary professional, as a father, a husband, and as a business owner. You know, you've got to think about all the hats you wear. But what is most important to me? What am I going to tolerate? And how am I going to construct a plan to get closer to what I want? As veterinary professionals, we are collectively not that great at saying, what do we really want and what will we tolerate? For example, if we were able to collectively say, we want to be able to work an eight hour or a 10 hour day, and we will not tolerate a 12 hour day collectively, 15 years ago, we'd have a very different environment today. So when we're talking about big picture changes, that would be my advice is think about what we want, what we need and what we can tolerate and then work towards that. When it comes to working towards this change, Rosie Overfield has some great advice on how to actually do this. Rosie is a vet nurse and qualified counsellor with a master's in HR. She's one of many wonderful people I've met through the veterinary industry who've become my friend. A few months after moving to the Sunshine Coast, I had my first kid-free outing, meeting Rosie for a coffee and a swim at the beach. On our walk home, I confessed that I didn't think I could work in vet med again 
because I knew I wouldn't be able to keep my mouth shut about some of the abnormal things our industry tends to view as normal. I couldn't have lived through my experience and not speak up. And I knew this could make me be perceived by any employer as difficult when my cultural and gender conditioning makes me want to be a good girl, passive, compliant. Rosie piped up and said, yes, Kat, this is exactly what vet medicine needs. We need disruption. I felt immediately naughty, like we were conspirators for some underground revolution. My chat with Rosie reassured me that I could come back to veterinary medicine, speak my mind, and use my experience for positive change. Boundaries can actually be developed with people and in consultation with people. And I always think back to some of those really old self-development models, you know, like circle of control and circle of influence, like what's in my control, what's out of my control. Okay, well, if that's out of my control, I just need to decide if I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I am okay with that. I I do realise my job requires me to work beyond 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. Cool, yep. So that's actually me still doing boundaries. Mm. I'm consciously accepting that boundary Mm -hmm. that's being applied by someone else. But the circle of influence as opposed to control is, What are the opportunities, conversations, ways of working that exist around this? Whether it's a conversation within the team and it's more about a system, a system change, or maybe it's a conversation with your supervisor or your boss. People often think things are happening to them and yet they've never opened up a conversation with other people involved in that to go, hey, can we do things differently? Mm. And so I think coming back to your question around boundaries, Firstly, it's really important to to understand what they are and what they aren't. Secondly, is there space in which we can collectively change a system so that everyone benefits from a better way of working? And I think thirdly, (laughs) and coming back to my point, sometimes your desire to set a boundary or the number of boundaries you're trying to set may actually encourage you to have different types of thinking about some bigger things in your life. Mm. And that might be your fit and suitability for a particular business. Mm. As we know, sometimes you just need to kind of pop the parachute, land somewhere else. Mm. And it's like, oh, Mm. this one fits better. This Mm. one's for me. And, And I think as a good workplace citizen, doing that in a dignified way without making it someone else's problem Mm. or blaming other people is a really smart thing to do. But Mm. I think oftentimes the boundary we're trying to set in clinic life is one that everybody wants to set. I'll always encourage communication to put it on the table and go, hey, guys, this isn't working. Mm. Not working for me, not working for you. Mm. This keeps happening. We're all getting home late, you know. Mm current state, future state, like Mm. let's pull it apart. Mm. Where's the control here? Do we have some controls? Is there opportunities? Let's redesign it. Let's trial it for a month. That's where if you've got your team health right and your culture right, you can go and pull apart systems like that Mm. to be able to shape the way that you work. And then it's less about me and my need to, it's almost like having your your shield up. It's like I have to set boundaries and Mm. I have to protect myself because this is just hideous to do Mm. this job and work here. 
I think every human being should take time to think about what's important to them, what they value. In doing that and identifying how it shapes behavior and shapes future wants and needs, particularly in professional life, that's always a nice lens to have in the way that you make decisions about where you work and what you do as well. Mm. But we're not born knowing how to set boundaries. I think it's really important to practice a bit of self-compassion around that. You know, tiny little babies are already being controlled by other people. We're just dying for that child to smile, you know, mm. it smiles and everyone loses their mind and that child's mm. like, oh, okay, well, this is what we do then. Mm. And that kind of continues. So, when we suddenly decide that's not how we want to do things, you know, mm. we've been conditioned for so long. You know, a good girl mm. <laughs> looks like this, sounds like this, talks mm. like this, you know. It, it's a great unlearning to be able to set boundaries. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the thinking piece and the what's important piece is a great start. but there's a science to the language of setting boundaries as well, and that that can be tough. Mm. <laughs> That's about identifying it and writing it down and practicing it and picking the right time, right place, and doing the ego check as well. You know, mm. is this really nece- – like is there a different way I can have my needs met here? Mm. Do, I, do I have to do this thing? Yeah. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you need to be elsewhere. Sometimes mm. you just need to involve your colleagues and your team to proactively go, anyone else – not feeling this. Mm. You know, anyone else want to talk about this? Mm. And I think that liberation to not feel the need to be a good girl that doesn't complain about that can be so important because with so many moving parts to a business, it, it's impossible sometimes for managers or directors or owners to be aware of these issues that are impacting people. If everybody just grits their teeth and pushes through it and doesn't say anything, then you know nobody can do anything about it. Whereas if one person says, actually, this isn't working for me. What about you guys? What if we somehow change the, you know, when we're admitting the surgeries or changed what we're doing with when we're doing our last consult, can we somehow tweak this? And so, those conversations, having them is super important. But I also think when we breach our boundaries little by little by little by little, I think sometimes there's that great analogy of, you know, you throw a frog in a pot of boiling water and they'll jump out and scream. But if you just put them in cold water and turn up the heat a little bit and a little bit and a little bit before they know it, they're boiling and they're still in that water. And I think that we can do that to ourselves sometimes. Like, yeah, sure, I can pick up that extra shift. And yeah, sure, I can not go to the gym today and stay late instead. And sure, I can not eat my lunch today. I'll eat my lunch tomorrow. And all of those little things can sort of add up. And then before you know it, you're having this meltdown and putting the shield up, as you say. So, really keeping an eye on the water temperature and can I, do I like this? It's the conscious thing. I'll often say that to people in whether it's one-on-one sessions or workshops and you see people's faces fall because they just want that magic pill. Mm. But it's it's being present, you know, being conscious to what's happening day to day and making conscious choices and stopping and taking that breath because the minute you go onto autopilot, which is often a really common response to being overwhelmed and, and having multiple priorities and challenges, You just get tossed around and your version of that can sometimes become quite negative. Mm. Like you said, happening to me. Mm. And and that was, for me, one of the really sad things I saw at the beginning of COVID was everyone just started laying into their bosses. Mm. It's like, guys, they haven't done this before Mm. either, you know, and, and everyone's just trying to do the best job that they can. So, the more that residual stress and, and the being tossed around by, by life and by work, we just start to lose consciousness 
and things start to happen to you and you pick up that other shift and you're like, whatever, okay, mm. yep, I'll do that. Oh, I'm not going to the gym. I'm so tired. Suddenly it's Friday and, mm. and you're like, why do I feel so tired? Why does it just feel like Groundhog Day? It's like, well, you allowed yourself to just work and sleep. Mm. What did you expect? Mm. Mm-hmm. What did you expect? And that's tough. Like managing your well-being is almost like another job. Mm. Everyone's well-being prescription is different, but you mm-hmm. have to you have to treat it like a case that you're managing. <laughs> because you have to pay attention, you have to be conscious because mm. those little micro traumas and that residual stress and mm. you know, it's it's what what you're doing is creating the antidote for the choice you made in your professional life, which is to do the work that you do. Mm. You know, you show up every day knowing that what's out of your control sometimes is the duration of your shift. You know, the fact that a client will ring and book something in for that, but it's actually this, Mm. that complications will arise, emergencies will come in. You willingly show up for that every day. You do. Mm. So, with that comes responsibility Mm. to fill your prescription. Yeah. Yours may be different to mine. We both like jumping in the ocean. That's how. Yep. But- if I do my job and I don't have at least two classes of yoga a week, I'm at the effect of the choice I've made in my career. Mm. So if that's my career choice, mm. I have to fill my prescription mm. and I have to fill it and do it well and treat it like another client. The client's me. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I have to show up for myself to be able to show up for other people. And it's so easy, isn't it, to go a couple of weeks where the wheels fall off a little bit and you're like, oh, I'm not, mm. I'm not going to the gym. Mm. Ah, it's raining. You often pay the price for that. Mm. And if you don't get back up on the horse really quickly, mm-hmm. then we start to see a lack of empathy come in. We start to see pro-social behaviours decrease in the workplace. Mm. We see relationships change because of that. Mm. You know, people's physical health changes. And the way your brain starts to preference things in terms of thinking, feeling, cognitive, it all starts to change. And Mm. so you just end up in survival mode and then we wonder why we we crash and burn. Kat Williams is someone who's experienced this crash and burn earlier in her career whilst working as a vet. And after developing anxiety and depression, she set off on a different path and began studying psychology. Kat draws upon her mix of personal experience and academic skills to work as a behaviour support technician. As for what one person can do, that's tricky because it really depends on each person's situation, but maybe even just starting with, with some small boundaries of, you know, taking a full lunch break or taking a 10 minute break. So I know that's can almost be laughed at at the vet industry in that we we hardly have time to to go to the toilet, let alone take our 10 minute breaks. But it is in the the national employment standards as, you know, just basic. All Australian employees should be able to have, you know, in a in a standard eight hour shift two 10 minute breaks. And I do think that's really important for well-being of employees and it will naturally feed into better patient outcomes. But just even let's just start with a a one-minute break, a two-minute break, just to have a breather. Something small like that where we're just starting a small boundary and then going from there. There can be some resistance to basic self-care. I have heard some veterinarians, you know, lamenting that when they set a boundary, a really healthy boundary, they have others sort of complaining that they're being uncooperative, they're not being team players, which is really sad 
from the point of view that we are discouraging really healthy behaviours that will encourage longevity in this industry. And it can be really tough in terms of conforming to those norms and, you know, being discouraged and and shamed for, for looking after yourself. So I think a few strategies is firstly to surround yourself, not necessarily in clinic, if, if that's not possible, but even just in, you know, the friends that you keep in touch with, the people that you talk to, the friends from vet school, vet nurses and vets that you've worked from in, in previous workplaces, you know, keeping in regular contact with them and, you know, having a community within the vet industry that support your goals, support what you're trying to do. And well, you know, if you're having a sick day because your mental health is just down the drain, you know, someone you could message and they could send back to you, you did the right thing. You know, your mental health is valid. It is 100% legitimate that you took the day off and just finding that that support network. So really surrounding yourself with with like-minded people. And and that can even also be on on social media, for instance, because there are people out there wanting positive change. And so I'd encourage you to, to seek out those people. Some of the changes you'll hear people talk about might make you feel uncomfortable or the thought of the confrontation required to make the change might make you feel sick. Kat shared her thoughts on this. So I think part of the solution to to where we're currently at is embracing productive conflict, healthy conflict. But it's not something we're really equipped with as kids. You know, no one teaches us through primary school or high school or even university because conflict's not a bad thing. You know, it leads to innovation. It means that we're considering all perspectives and we don't have blind spots. There's this huge danger to, you know, conformity, blind conformity, where Mm. we're all in an echo chamber. How do we, you know, disagree with others well? So maybe that's uh, something that we can all upskill ourselves in so that we're reaching the, the best outcome and we're not walking away from these conversations crushed and angry and frustrated. You know, I'm sure that we'll be part of it, but, you know, how do we handle it as productively as possible, knowing that there's going to be multiple opinions, multiple perspectives, and if we can engage with them in the best possible way, we can benefit from that diversity. Mm, I love what you're talking about. And yeah, it is another one of those soft skills that really isn't a soft skill. It's a big, crazy, bold skill in learning how to to have that productive conflict and how to disagree respectfully and how to speak up even if what you're saying is not part of the echo chamber, which can be really difficult. Yeah. And it reminds me of something that we were talking about, about the power of one. So, the power of an individual to, to change the culture. And I wanted to share with you the Solomon Ash studies. Basically, what it sort of shows us is the power of other people to influence our behavior. So, the initial study that he ran was back in the 50s. And it has, you know, a bunch of people in a room All of the rest of them, just, you know, say, for instance, it's five other people. They're actually Confederates. So they're in on it with the researcher. And the test that is given to all of them is that they're given three lines. So they're to look at. They're given this first line and then they're given two other lines, say line A or line B. And the question is, the first line that you see, is it the same length? Line A might be two centimetres. Obviously, you know, they're, they're pretty much the same height. Whereas line B is five centimetres. So, you know, we're talking more than double. And 
what the, the research found is that, you know, if the participants just answered it on their own without anyone else saying what they did, they got it right. I think it was about 95% of the time. So, it's not a hard question. But what happened is that when the Confederates, so the guys who were in on it, the researcher told all these guys to say the wrong answer. So if you have five people ahead of you saying, you know, it's line B, it's line B, it's line B, it's line B, that really affected the participants' answer in that out of, you know, conformity, they would quite often say the wrong answer just because of that social influence. So that's really interesting from the the perspective of you know, we can know in ourselves what the right thing is or, you know, be pretty certain of an answer, but just the power of those around us and what they're saying, how that can have, you know, a tangible difference in in what we do and say. But there's been many, many iterations of this study and many modifications to test different variables. And one that I gleaned a lot of encouragement from is the idea of the, the power of just one ally. So again, if you imagine this setup with the lines and you have to tell them, you know, is the line you're looking at the same length as line A or line B? You've got, you know, say 10 Confederates in the room, so 10 other people in on it with the researcher and say nine of them say it's line B, the inaccurate answer, but just one of them says it's line A, the participant was much, much more likely to say line A. So just the power that one person can make, having one other person in the room, putting their hand up and saying, it's this, this is what I see and this is what I believe and I'm going to state it. Yeah, it has power. And so I'd want to encourage you, if you're that one person in the clinic trying to make a difference, you're in a, a room of nine or more other people, you know, sort of going contrary to, to the change that you're trying to make, you know, stand tough make that little change because you never know how your little revolution is affecting others. And it can, you know, be that slight difference that gives someone else the courage to step up and say, look, I want to do the same. Support for Radio Vet Nurse Interrupted comes from AIRC, the Animal Industries Resource Centre. AIRC provides first-class veterinary nurse and animal care qualifications and education, supporting students all over Australasia. Over the years, I've met countless AIRC trainers and mentors on volunteer committees that lobby for industry and veterinary nurse progression. I love the idea that they are passing this passion onto their students. It's more important now than ever that we produce veterinary professionals brave enough to inspire change and advance our industry. AIRC, together with the Crampton Consulting Group, was the first Radio Vet Nurse sponsor back in 2018, and the Interrupted series wouldn't exist without their continued financial and personal support. Support for Radio Vet Nurse Interrupted comes from the Animal Emergency Service, AES. After having my own clinic for over seven years, looking for a job was scary. My trauma was really fresh, I was full of imposter syndrome and a newly single parent of a baby and three-year-old. I couldn't imagine who would want to employ me. AES hired me as the veterinary nurse manager on the Sunshine Coast. I was apologetic about my personal situation, but from day one, my manager and director said they knew I'd need support through this time and were thrilled to offer it. AES cares for its people and vet nurses have a seat at the table where we run the business. Without them, I'm not sure I would have stayed in the industry, and this series wouldn't be possible without their financial support. 
At the very start of this series, I shared with you my personal story, the story of how my marriage unraveled due to the pressures of the vet industry. This is a trauma that I've used as the driving force behind this series, a series that I hope inspires change. As we now near the end of the series, I wanted to wrap up in a similar way to how I started, by sharing another story of someone who's bravely using their trauma to drive change and innovation. The story is from one of our industry leaders, Ken Yagi, and I'd like to thank Ken for being so vulnerable and open. Back in 2005, my wife and I was uh, at one of our later stage uh pregnancy, uh, you know, routine exams where they go and do the Doppler exam to take a look at the fetal heartbeat, that kind of routine check. In one of those checks, uh, we found that the baby's heart rate was uh, irregular. And so the doctor had recommended that we induce labor to deliver the baby so that, that we can take care of whatever issues might be going on. So they induce labor the usual uh, process in delivering the baby. And as she came out, there was a whole lot of commotion in the room. The nurse uh, carried the the baby over to the incubation table that they have. There was an overhead page that said uh, RT, like respiratory therapist to whatever room stat. And, you know, people started running over. And in the middle of all that, Iris is asking me like, Ken, what's going on? Because she's over in the other bed and she can't see what's going on. Which, uh, like, I felt helpless myself, but uh, what had happened was that our daughter that was born was born without one side of her lung. And so she had difficulty breathing right as she had come out, and they had to provide uh, oxygen uh, therapy to her, and she was uh, admitted uh, straight to the NICU. And then from that the hospital, we actually got transferred to uh, the Stanford Children's Hospital, uh, Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, to be hospitalized for a while. She was on the ventilator initially came off of the ventilator. She still had a feeding tube in, but she came off of that as well. And eventually we got to the point where we got to go home. And so she got to meet her other furry, like, you know, family members and um, spent some time at home. Um, but um, uh, after, after a little while, uh, once we got home, after a couple of weeks uh, to a month, actually, um, uh, she um, went into respiratory distress. We had to call the ambulance. We went back into the hospital, uh, admitted to the pediatric ICU, and uh, we obviously did everything that we could uh, for her, but eventually um, had to let her go. Um, and so she didn't come home uh, this time. And um, that obviously uh, was a hard time for us. I stopped working. Um, I spent about six months at home, not really doing anything except for trying to survive. And uh, it was the same for Iris as well. It was um, a time where we were probably in the lowest point in our life, where we you know, basically felt like life might as well have been over. And I say that uh, somewhat intentionally to clearly state where our mindset was at that point in time. But with that said, eventually came to the point where I realized that I need to pick myself up and keep moving. I, you know, realized that Iris was in the same, uh, you know, low place that I was in and I had to be there for her. We had to be there for each other and we had to keep moving. And what helped me move forward from there really was the time that we spent in the NICU. And I just remember the 
faces of the people that were taking care of uh, our daughter, the nurses that were in the uh, the NICU. When she was on the ventilator, we had just been admitted. Uh, they would say things like, you must have had some music that you wanted to play for her. You might have had books that you wanted to read to her. Just bring it all in. Like Think of this as your home and just come on in, visit anytime and spend as much time as possible as a family. So then we would come in uh, another time and she was off the ventilator. And one of the overnight nurses came over and said, hey, like, you know, she's off the ventilator. We knew she could do it. We advocated for her to come off. The sooner she could come off, the better for her. And so here she is off the ventilator. And just thinking about um, all the ways in which they advocated for our daughter, took care of her, took care of us as a family, knowing, um, you know, possibly where this was all headed. Um, and the openness in which we were able to visit any time, uh, make sure that we spent time with each other. I felt like, why, like, you know, why couldn't veterinary medicine be the same? I'm not saying that it isn't, but in many cases it isn't, right? Because we're talking about toxic cultures and there's a lot of antagonistic uh, dynamic between the pet owners and the veterinary team and maybe between veterinary team members and also the fact that, that we separate the pets from the owners and uh, just thinking about it from being on the side, the receiving end of how veterinary medicine is practiced. It just made me feel like, why why can't it be more like this? And that's what became my motivation to keep moving and my motivation to change how veterinary medicine is currently practiced in a place where I can actually talk about it and I'm actually turning it into positives. This is a part of the reason why I now know that I'm actually here for the people, that the people mm. that are involved in on both sides. Oh, that's incredible. And I really, I really understand where you're coming from because I too am using something awful that has happened that I can sort of start to to process now as a motivation to try and help other people and maybe prevent other people from my experience. But I love this story because I often think, why as a profession do we, certainly I don't think in Australia we know so much about veterinary nurses, but we know with vets that they're four times more likely to commit suicide than the general population. We lose about one vet every 12 weeks here. And I think why do our human medico counterparts not seem to be represented in these statistics like we are? And, and I think surely it must be as difficult, if not more, to be working as a nurse or a doctor in palliative care or with, you know, critical babies, especially in a, in a situation like yours where you're extending such love and compassion to parents knowing full well that their story may end in tragedy and the emotional investment of that and the, the grief and the processing must be enormous. And your story makes me think maybe even despite that, just having the, the families more involved and, and keeping the, the parents or in our situation, the pet parents in the picture might as a whole be much more healthy for us. Yeah, I've actually uh, thought about that myself too, because that's a really good point in that what if we weren't able to spend that time with our daughter? What if we were, you know, only given certain windows of time to visit and spent basically the vast majority of her life uh, being away from her? And I just wonder about that, that uh, I don't think that we would have been able to process our grief in the way that uh, we did. There's evidence out there in terms of 
on the human side, uh, visitation in the ICU and even something like uh, family witness CPR where people, the family witnesses uh, CPR being performed on their family member, even though on the medical professional side, we have our fears. What if they get in the way? What if they intervene? And what if uh, they get traumatized because of the experience? And those are the fears that we have. The um, evidence is actually showing that it allows people to realize the level of care that went in, that uh, they have a peace of mind that everything possible had been done, and that uh, it actually uh, facilitates the grieving process. And so uh, it may there may be a lot of benefits than we think. Yeah, and that just makes me want to open up every single veterinary surgery and hospital around the world so that we can, you know, keep people involved in these steps that are critical to having that acceptance, I guess, of what's happening. And I always feel um, terrible separating pet parents from their pets as well, because having young kids myself, I've been to hospital a few times where, you know, your child's got a virus, but then all of a sudden their breathing's not looking quite right and they've had a temperature for five days and you go into hospital, you know, maybe a few times and go in and out of hospital. And I can't imagine somebody saying, okay, he's not looking that great. So, we're going to take him out the back now. You can sit here and wait. You know, you just need to be there next to your child to to understand that, okay, nothing's going wrong at the moment. He's stable. Nurses are coming and checking him every X number of minutes. And that gives a lot of peace of mind, which we're not affording people, I guess. Yeah, exactly. There's even a, a I think, a Harvard uh, Business Review article on operational transparency, and they try to break this down a little bit more. And uh, it's a very insightful article. But uh, the title uh, of that uh, subtitle of that article says, uh, show people how hard you work. Uh, mm. If you think about some of the current issues that we have with angry clients and having to wait uh, in the car for a very long time and only having short touch points with the doctor or the veterinary team and feeling like they didn't get really the best care. So much of that is just dissipates when you just invite them into the environment. Obviously, you have to do it in a safe way, you know, with COVID and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's more so important now that uh, we try our best and find ways in which we can keep that connection rather than just uh, keeping them out and feeling safer in our uh, environment because of that. David Bessler, who is the CEO of Edge, and uh, he um, obviously truly believes in the open concept as well. He's sort of described three different dimensions of uh, openness, which is pretty interesting. The first dimension is basically just a client to veterinary team interaction that the client comes into the hospital, we provide services, and you know there's a little bit of a transaction basically, and that's just the first dimension. The second dimension is when the pet owner is actually in the environment, they see what's going on, they're sometimes involved in the care, maybe they're scratching you know their pet's head when a shot is being given or something like that. Uh, obviously, we'll do it in a safe way, but something like that where they start to participate in the veterinary care. So then we're kind of like part of the team. And then there's the third dimension, which is pretty interesting in that the clients start to interact with each other, which is very mm-hmm. cool. An example of that may be something like a pet is, you know, rushed in because the dog was just hit by a car and needs emergency, uh, you know, treatment. And so the veterinary team is hard at work. Uh, trying to help the animal and the owner uh, of the pet is crying over on the side. And then another uh, pet owner that's in the hospital comes over and starts consoling that person. Oh, wow. Or there's another example where there's a good number of uh, pet owners that was in the practice overnight and 
uh, this one gentleman is also there because his pet is very sick and uh, overhears a conversation where, um, and uh, you know, there's privacy concerns and things like that maybe, but um, overhears a conversation where the other pet owner is having trouble finding the ways in which they might be able to pay the the bill when they're given the estimate. And overhearing that, this other gentleman who apparently is um, well off enough offers to pay for that person's bill but not just their bill, but everyone else's bill that was oh there goodness. at that point in time. And uh, I've seen the photos of that moment um, that uh, David has, and I, he's uh, shown it to us. And uh, the person with the biggest smile there is actually the person that paid the bill. Because <laughs> he, if he was able to, and he bought into the veg mission, which is helping people and their pets when they need it most. And he was able to participate and contribute to that mission. And that's how, like, you know, happy he felt about that. And so it's, those are just really good, like, you know, uh, feel good examples of why this open concept works. I love that story. And when I think about one of maybe the symptoms that people within the industry are experiencing at the moment, you know, compassion fatigue or just generally having lost faith in, you know, what we're doing or feeling like we hate people and can't the pets just come in on a conveyor belt with the owner's wallet attached to them and, you know, all of the, these things that we we say and that we make memes about. But Part of the picture that we miss when we want it to look like that is we we can't witness those acts of kindness and the greatness of humanity and also the human-animal bond and the human-to-human bond and all of those things that make us feel good about the world. So, I really feel like maybe that is part of the picture that we're missing. I'm smiling really big right now because you use the word that I'm starting to use. Uh, human-animal bond is definitely there as a term, but the human-human bond is actually something that's important too. And we don't really think about that and we don't use that as common terminology, but I do think that it's very important. And I guess uh, it's kind of funny because when I tell my story and how I came to be, uh, the reason why I got into veterinary medicine way back when, when I was younger, was because I thought, well, uh, I don't really like people, so what about animals? <laughs> and uh, I'm a huge introvert. And now I completely feel differently that uh, it's because of the people that I'm here, the people, whether it's the pet owners, the uh, veterinary team, I'm just trying to make uh, changes happen that's going to take care of uh, each of those uh, entities uh, better. I agree. And another thing that you've touched on is that clients versus us mentality that I think the open hospital could break because somehow I don't think that NICU nurses have group Facebook pages where they share memes bagging on parents of, of babies in the NICU, which is something that we have in our culture, which can't be healthy. Um, yeah, I do think that uh, one of the things that has continued to bug me and more so since my own experience is uh, when there's some kind of comments made within the veterinary team about how stupid that client is. There's different kinds of comments that could be made that is with a lot of vitriol towards the pet owners. And we have to realize that we see it every day. We know what makes sense or what's medically sound or you know, how we should be treating this particular patient. But for them, it's usually their first experience. They don't know, you know, what we know. And so just not being able to be compassionate enough to realize that. And also, um, I think I would be the first to uh, admit that uh, if it's my own animal, I become helpless, like I become useless, like all the knowledge mm -hmm. that I'm supposed to have, like it just goes out the window and uh, I 
Like, I don't know what to do. And so then I ask seemingly stupid questions and that's the state that they're in. And, you know, they don't even have the knowledge and experience. And so just uh, being a little bit more compassionate about that. And also knowing that, uh, you know, we're all interested in the same thing, which is taking care of the pets. And we just have different, uh, you know, uh, perspectives that we bring to it is important. I think it's pretty clear from the audio, but Ken is a really kind man. It was really generous of him to share his story with me, knowing what I had recently been through, and so brave to be willing to share with all of us. When I asked Ken about the future of our industry, he was wonderfully optimistic. I think we as a profession are maybe in the worst place that uh, it has been in terms of the attrition and the different kinds of issues that we're facing today. But that really puts us in the best place for change in that, that there's pressures that is pushing against the things that have been happening so that we can make it a better place. And so there's a lot of attention in our profession. A lot of uh, great people out there are trying to look for the solutions that's going to turn things around. And so this is the time to speak up. You know, everyone should be looking at uh, what they can do within their resources, within their reach to nurture more leaders within the profession, utilize their resources to create a better environment for members of our profession, taking the moment to advocate, take the seat at the leadership table to make these kinds of changes that's uh, going to help the future of our profession. And so I really would encourage everyone to look for those and make sure that uh, we are building on top of each other in order to, to get there because uh, we need it right now. And I'd be happy to be walking alongside everyone in that journey. In the first episode, I shared one of my favorite quotes from Desmond Tutu, who says that there comes a point where we need to stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. I've explored the veterinary industry we're currently living in and some of the ways our people are being swept away by the river. I've spoken with some of the brightest brains in the industry about what we can do upstream. We looked at big changes as well as things we can do as individuals by the power of one to harness this opportunity for massive change. And that is as simple and as complex as this interruption is. Whether you call it an interruption, disruption, revolution or evolution is just semantics. The important thing is the timing. And the time is now. Go upstream. Have a difficult conversation. Make a conscious decision about how to proceed, how to look after our people and ourselves. Thanks for joining me on Radio Vetness Interrupted. I really believe the disruption is here and I thank you for joining me on this journey. If this episode has raised any concerns for you and you'd like to speak to someone for support, I'll be putting details of the best helplines in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this series, make sure you stay subscribed to Radio Vetness as I'll be releasing each interview in full. And you never know, maybe another series one day. In the meantime, take care and it's good to be back. <laughs>